We're in a new uh, series that we started last week in Genesis. So we're looking specifically at Genesis 2 and 3. But last week we started by going back to Genesis 1. And it was a bit of a fire hydrant of information. And also, very unfortunately, it was not recorded. Thanks as well for being our fourth podcast subscriber, Michelle. You get a gold star for that. Um, but uh, last week we tried to communicate four, or I tried to communicate four different things about Genesis 1. So I'm just going to recap those for us very quickly. The first was kind of information. What is happening in these six days of creation? And I basically made the claim that there are three days where God is creating spaces or realms, and then he is filling those spaces or realms with rulers and people in the second three days. And we'll look more at that again this week. And then we slowed down as we got towards the end, and I talked about this theme of reversal that happens in this story of of Genesis 1. That even though people are created on the last day, they are given leadership and, and rule over everything which becomes this pattern that we see again and again in the rest of Scripture, this this theme of reversal that will will play out and even into the ministry of Jesus. And then we looked at the human job description, that to the very big surprise of the people who would be reading that passage, God says that every person is made in his image. Every person is, in fact, royalty, a king or a queen. That means every person has value. Every person can reflect the image of God into the world. And then we close by looking at rest, And and for most of us, I think we think of rest as stopping the obligations that we have, taking a break from them. But And and that can be part of rest. But in this passage, rest is two very specific things. That God wants to come and dwell with his people. God comes and lives in the temple that he's made of this world. And he invites us to share in his divine life. And he he invites us also to participate in what he's been doing. To extend and continue this creativity into the world. So that's Genesis 1, and and this week we're going to hop into Genesis 2, starting in verse 4, and it's going to be another kind of introduction sermon. It's some, I would say, I I call it ground clearing, that we need to clear the ground before we continue to look at this this passage and this chapter um, in in greater detail. And uh, so it will follow the same pattern as last week. There will be a bunch of information at the beginning, and I hope it will get more sermony towards the end, okay? That's the theological term. Now, uh, one last thing before we, we dig in. Um, uh, Pastor Mitch thinks he believes that to be a real Christian, you need to bring a physical Bible to church, okay? Uh, that's a very strong belief of his. Um, I, he thinks I'm not, you know, I'm barely making it. I just have paper up here. But uh, I'm just like, you know what? If people showed up, That's great. That's what we can ask of people. Um, But I would agree with him, especially for this series, that this is one where I would strongly encourage you to bring a physical Bible if you have one. We also have a bunch of uh, copies of the text that we'll be looking at from Genesis 2 and 3 printed at the back over by Corey, if you can just give a wave. There's a bunch of them over there. So if you want to grab them, couldn't find the pens this morning, but you can at least have the text. So you can go and grab one of those if you want and then just bring it back week after week as we work through these passages. So, with all that out of the way, let's get started in Genesis 2, starting verse 4. These are the generations of the skies and the land, when they were created. In the day when Yahweh Elohim made the land and skies, and no shrub of the field was yet in the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord Elohim had not sent rain upon the land, and there was no human to work the ground, but a stream would go up from the land, and it would water the whole face of the ground, Then Yahweh Elohim formed the human of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the human became a living being. 
And Yahweh Elohim planted a garden in Eden towards the east, and he placed there the human whom he had formed. This is God's word. Well, last week we looked at the Genesis 1 narrative. So today when we look at this text from Genesis 2, which we just read, there should be some questions that naturally come up for us. The first one is like, why is there another creation narrative? Didn't we just read one? Like, why, why would there be another one um, here? And the second question that might come up for us is, why are the time periods different? If you were here with us last week, we looked at these six days that the creation happens in Genesis 1. And then I don't know if you noticed, but in this passage, here's what it says, that God created in one day, on the day that he created, in that day. Why are the time periods different? One is six days, one is one day. And then finally, why is the order different in these passages? Again, last week we looked at this very beautiful chart that I made. Um, and you guys were like, oh, my retinas just stopped bleeding. Why do you show this again? Um, but I want to focus in on, on, if you go to the next slide, these, three, these two things specifically. On day three in Genesis 1, there's land and vegetation. And then on day six, the bonus creation is human beings. But what do we see in this passage? It's very different. It says there's no shrub, no plant, and God made the humans. So humans come before the plants in the second creation narrative. And if you continue to read on, which we will do over time, you'll see the chronology is completely different. Animals get created later, then there's a woman. So it's a completely different uh, chronology in chapter 2. So it's like having two pictures of the same thing that are totally different, placed side by side. I don't know if you ever did those uh, spot the difference games as a kid. That's what's like happening. It's almost like this. If we put these two pictures side by side with each other, and be like, they're, they're exactly the same, right? No difference. And you'd probably say, no, they are different. The people on the right are much better looking than the people on the left. Okay, we'll get that off of there. So but then this, it feels like what, that's what's happening in Genesis 1 and 2. It's like these two things that are supposed to be the same, but then somehow they're different with each other. So what's going on here? That should be the big question that we're supposed to ask. And uh, I think if we open up that question, what's happening with these two different accounts of what's going on, then we, we may as well also be honest about the other questions that we have if we continue to read into Genesis. For example, you might say like modern science seems to disagree that we, we didn't just descend from two people, all, all these two people in a garden somewhere, and everyone who's gone looking from, for this garden, including, I think, Indiana Jones, haven't seemed to find this, this garden that supposedly exists. Or it's hard for me to believe that all the problems that we have in the world come because this woman ate an apple after listening to a fast-talking snake. Or, like, what about dinosaurs and evolution, and there's no evidence for a worldwide flood, and so on and so on. There's lots of questions that should naturally come up for us as modern people. And that set of questions may also introduce to us another set of questions or anxieties that we might feel, uh, especially if you grew up in the church, which is to say something like this, like, can I even ask those kinds of questions? Like, does that make me a bad Christian? And do I just lack faith? And for some of us, we'll also think of people in our lives, that if we start asking these types of questions, they, they have very concrete answers to those questions, and it may put us into a weird relationship with them. 
And so we feel these tensions to various degrees, and we also adapt different strategies to deal with these, these questions that we have. Some of us, we might just ignore the, the questions that naturally come up. We may see them, but we'll be like, you know what? <laughs> Let's just move on. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. <laughs> Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or what we can do is move to very quick resolution of these and find people, you can find some of them on this platform called YouTube, who are very, very sure of where they land on these things. And then you can just go towards them. And we all pursue different strategies. And uh, regardless of what your strategy is while you're here, very grateful that you're here with us this morning. But I want to ask us to take a different tack this morning, just at least for the the 30 minutes or so that we're going to be chatting. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. First, I want to ask you to assume, along with me, that the writers of the Bible and the editors of the Bible, they weren't idiots. Which may be a big assumption, because that can be something we can think, like these idiots just put this together. And in the back of our mind, we can think, like, if I was to hop in the DeLorean and just head back and meet these folks and be like, hey, look, big fan of your work. But I don't know if you noticed, but these two uh, stories that you put side by side, they don't, they don't work together. And they'd be like, oh my goodness, thank you for coming and telling us. Our copy editor, Jedediah, he has <laughs> been hitting the sauce a little too hard. So we'll catch this, we'll catch this in addition too. But like, that can be the, the underlying assumption in the back of our minds. But people have been reading this for thousands of years. And I, for me, reading this passage again and again, these people are brilliant. They're absolutely brilliant. I don't think they just missed something that's very glaring to us. Um, So I'm saying that they put these two spot-the-difference pictures side-by-side on purpose. And I think the purpose is to actually draw us into the text. Not to push us away or to ask us to leave our brains at the door, but actually to come to the text, to dig in a little bit and see what these apparent contradictions might say about who we are and the assumptions we bring to this story and what the Bible is and what it's trying to communicate to us. So that's where we're going this morning. Now, three notes before we hop in. The first is this. I can't say everything about every question that we have, and this is a massive topic. And I say that mostly for myself, because every when it comes to stuff like this, things just get daisy-chained, and I want to talk about everything, but then we'd be here for like two months, and nobody wants that. So I just am saying that there's a lot we could talk about. I won't get to everything, but I'm always happy to chat, and next month we'll also have a Q&R. So after the, the sermon, or after the, the gathering together, then we'll have some time where we can ask those questions together. So please, uh, let's talk, or you can talk to your community group leaders. They know all the answers to all these questions that you have, so... Um, secondly, this is where I've landed on this topic. And what I mean by that is I don't, I don't believe, like all of us, I don't believe things because I think they're wrong. I believe things because I think they're true and they're right and they're helpful. But at the same time, I totally recognize that there are people who love Jesus more than me, probably, who are way smarter than me, definitely, and, they're, and they disagree with me on this topic. And then there are also people that are much smarter than me that agree with me on this topic. And so this is just where I've landed, and I share it to say, to hopefully be helpful and talk through it. And then finally, I feel compelled to talk about this from personal experience. And I say that because some of you in the room, you might be frustrated. Like, why would we even talk about this? Why would you point this out? Like, this is just controversial. Let's not be controversial. Let's just have a nice Sunday, drink more coffee. You know, why do you have to be like this classic Enneagram 5 person? Um, And you're just like, this is not my issue. Who cares? Who cares about it? 
And I, I want to say the reason that I share about it from personal experience. So before I was a pastor here, for about 15 years, I did campus ministry. So I started here at UBC, and then I did campus ministry actually all over the world. And we would always, we put on a lot of different events. And the purpose of these events was to help people, uh, students who were Christian or not Christian, consider faith or walk ahead with faith. This is why faith might matter. So we did all sorts of different events. Um, maybe the one that uh, stands out the most in my mind is we did this thing called the Great Porn Debate. So we, we invited this guy, Ron Jeremy, who's a porn star, to debate this guy who's a Christian ex-porn addict. And uh, it was probably, that's the most non-Christians I've ever seen at a Christian event in my entire life. It was wild. And you can ask me about some interesting stories that came up after. But we also did, like, before Truth and Reconciliation was a thing, we did a Truth and, Truth and Reconciliation art show, which is just amazing and beautiful and heartbreaking at the same time. We brought Dan Hughes, who played for the Vancouver Canucks at one point in time, to talk about, like, you know, success, or I guess he played for the Canucks, so lack of success, and, like, sports, and faith, and all these different things. So we brought all these different kind of events. But um, one year, we brought uh, a professor that I had in my undergrad and a friend of mine. His name is Dennis Lamoureux. He teaches at the University of Alberta. And he is a Regent grad. So he went to school just down the, uh, the road here at Regent. And his area of expertise is Genesis 1 to 11, basically the passages we're going to be looking at. He has a PhD. He also has a PhD in biology. So he's a scientist. So he would come and he would talk about faith and science. And we didn't massively uh, market these events, but they were always full. People would come. So let's imagine there's 200 people in the room at UBC or SFU, which at SFU, if you don't know, that is an absolute feat. I don't think it's over-speaking to say nobody comes to anything ever at SFU. <laughs> but the room would be packed. So he'd give his talk. He'd do Q&A. Nobody would leave. And then we'd be like, look, we have to go out of the room. So let's say from 200 people, 100 people would gather outside the room and continue to ask him questions. Two hours would go by it whittles down to maybe 50 people. And those 50 people, you had to basically pay them to leave. They just wouldn't leave. Because for them, and I asked Dennis afterwards, I'm like, dude, because we were supposed to go for dinner uh, both nights, and we didn't get dinner at all. And he, I'm like, this is like, this is crazy. He's like, yeah, for those students, this is the question. And he shared with me about one student in particular at UBC who said to him, look, I'm actually considering suicide. I grew up in this fundamentalist home. Now I'm studying science at UBC, and I just feel like I'm getting torn in half. And I don't know what to do with my life. And so maybe that's not you, but there are people like that. And, and Dennis would also say, a lot of these students would say their church just never talked about these things. And so I don't want to be that kind of community. Even if it's not your issue, there are people here, and so we want to talk about it. And secondly... I'll say this, even though this may personally not be your issue, and it's not mine either, to be honest, I have learned so much from uh, digging into these passages about how to be a better learner from God's story and what it might actually be saying to us. So even if it's not your issue, I encourage you to hang with me this morning and let's try to learn what God might be saying to us through this text. So the question I want to ask this morning is, what is this text? And I've narrowed it down to two Things Of my 30 bullet points that I started with, I narrowed it down to two. So here's the first one. This is ancient literature. This is ancient literature. And you might think, wow, amazing. You've been studying this passage for years. You've been planning this sermon series since the beginning of the summer. This is what you've come up with. It is. 
but it's very important to us. And I want to rely on the words of uh, someone who's been very helpful to me, but is also an ancient Near Eastern expert. His name's John Walton. So I'm going to read from him. The ancients think differently. They perceive the world in different ways, with different categories and priorities than we do. In our culture, we think scientifically, which we carry with us into the narrative of Genesis. This means we're primarily concerned with causation, composition, systematization, repeated events, boiling things down to a single story. That's what science teaches us. Now, is science good? Yeah, science is awesome. It's a, yesterday it's rained, and we know what's happening here in Vancouver, right? And we are very grateful to science for Gore-Tex, aren't we? That the rain is coming, but we know we have double-gusseted jackets and Arcteryx and Gore-Tex. These are all gifts from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, okay? Very important for us to know. Science is fantastic. So, but it, it causes us to think in a certain way. In the ancient world, they are more likely to think of the world in terms of symbols and to express their understanding by means of imagery. We are primarily interested in events and material realities in modern life, but they are more interested in ideas and their representation. They see the world, and he's coined this term, imagistically. Imagistically. So there's two sets of values, two ways of seeing the world, two ways of representing truth. A scientific way of representing truth and an imagistic way of representing truth. Not, one is not better or worse. They're just two different ways, and we need to distinguish what is happening when. So that's the theoretical explanation. I'm going to steal an illustration from him in order to try to make this practical and maybe more sticky from us. So I'm going to show you two pictures of the night sky. The first picture here is from the Hubble telescope. It's called the Hubble Ultra Deep Field, uh, a photo from Hubble Ultra Deep Field. So this is probably one of the most fun things from my research this week. I researched this. I didn't know anything about it. It is fascinating. So about 30 years ago or something like that, they threw this telescope up into space, and uh, they, they pointed it at this place that was just black in the middle of the sky. And they captured data over, I think it's like three months they just captured data, and then they beamed that data back to Earth. And it took them like four or five months with like the strongest computers and all these specialized tools. And this is the picture that they developed over all that time. 10,000 galaxies in this photo. Light that came from 13 billion years ago in this photo. Absolutely mind-blowing. Absolutely crazy. And from what I understand, I'm not a scientist. I'm like a scientist. Um, more, but like from what I understand, this has changed how we see science and how we see the world. Uh, if you want it dumbed down even farther, it's like basically we, we think of the Spider Verse because of pictures like this. Okay, that's my un that's my understanding where I'm at with this thing. Okay, so this picture, this is a beautiful picture that science can give us of the night night sky. I want to ask a few questions about it. First question: Is this the night sky? This is a trick question. No, this is pixels on a screen. Sorry if you thought it was the night sky. It is pixels on a screen. Is it a representation of the night sky? 
Now you're a little more hesitant, aren't you? You know there's some tricks in here. So yes, it is. It is that, that from what I understand, even though it was like 30 years ago or something like that, it is like one of the best representations of what we understand the cosmos to be like. At the same time, I will say this. It takes a wild amount of faith to believe that this is what's out there. If, imagine if, maybe not for you or I, but imagine we're just talking to some random person and we're like, that's what's out there. And then they look up, they're like, that's not what's out there. Like, you're, you know, a, a child, a Vancouverite child would look up there, like, there's not even stars in the sky. I can't see anything up there. I thought I saw one thing. It turned out that was just a flare flight that was leaving seven hours late. That's all that was uh, going up there. We can't see this with the naked eye. Even if you're out in space, you can't see this with the naked eye, actually. You have to have a, a wild amount of trust in this huge system of science that we built. And I'm not saying we shouldn't, okay? That, I'm not asking us to question that. I'm just telling you that that, that is true. So here's the, the other question, the last question. Does this picture, represent, or representation of the night sky, does it communicate truth? And again, the answer is slightly complicated. Yes, no, and it depends. Yes, as far as I understand, this communicates the truth of what we understand our place in the cosmos to be. And no by this. If you think that truth is something that will be true forever, I don't know that we can say that this is truth. Because hopefully, in a thousand years, we'll know more about our world. And in a thousand years, if we're still around by then, you know, people will laugh and they'll be like, how did you think this was like, this was it? You know? How did it take you nine months to develop this photo with like 10,000 scientists working on it? I can do that with my iPhone 3000 in like 15 (laughs) seconds. Right? They'll laugh at, at what we knew about the world. So on the other hand, it isn't. And then finally, it depends. It depends what you mean by truth. It depends what question you're asking. If the question you're asking is, what's our place in the cosmos, then yeah, it does. If, you're, if your question is, like, what should I do tomorrow? Like some of the questions Michelle was talking about. Does it really help you? I don't know. It depends. It depends on what you're asking. So, uh, and I'll say, come back. If those are the questions you're asking, Genesis actually has a lot to say to us about it. Come back and let's keep reading. So now I'm going to, this is one picture, okay? Now I want, this, this is scientific, uh, a picture of the night sky, a scientific picture of the night sky. Now I want to show you a different picture. Van Gogh's Starry Night, one of the most famous uh, paintings of all time. Now, questions again. First, is this the night sky? You should say, you should know the answer. It was a trick the first time, but if you get tricked again, I don't know. It's pixels on a screen. Or... If you're in first-year university, it is a print that is on your wall in your dorm room. Um, Does it represent the night sky and communicate truth? Now, here's where I'm going to come back to what John Walton says, and I want you to listen. People would never consider doing astronomy from Van Gogh and could not even do so if they wanted to. The image contains nothing of the composition or the position of the stars. There is no scientific information in that picture. At the same time, we should not say that it is a false depiction of the night sky. Visual artists depict the world imagistically, and we recognize that their depiction is independent of science, but not independent of truth. It is independent of science, but not independent of truth. The ancients apply this same imagistic conception to all genres of literature, including those that we cannot conceive of as anything other than scientific. We look at the Genesis narratives and we think, of course, it's going to be scientific. They are applying imagistic thinking. Imagistic history, like that preserved in Genesis, is to history as the starry night is to the Hubble 
photograph. This does not warrant labeling the literature mythology, nor does it concern questions of reality or truth. Some might consider the trees, the garden, and the snake to be examples of imagistic thinking, without thereby denying the reality or truth to the account. The Genesis author understands trees, which we'll, we'll meet here in a, few, in a few weeks. The Genesis author understands trees in a way that does not simply indicate a botanical species of flora with remarkable chemical properties. When we put these elements in their ancient Near Eastern context and recognize the Israelite capacity and even propensity to think in imagistic terms, we may find that we gain a deeper understanding of important theological realities. And that's where we're going to go in one minute, is to talk about what are they trying to communicate. But before we do, I just want to hammer this point home, follow up by what he, he closes with. He says this, This generates the repeated warning that we have to take care not to impose our categories of thinking on the literature that was more at home in the ancient world than in our own. Don't impose our thinking. So what we have in Genesis, according to him, and I agree, we have something more like the Van Gogh, something more like this than the Hubble photograph. And we might say, oh, like, I wish it was the Hubble photograph. That's great. Me too. I do as well. But it, if, if, for me, at least, when I read it, that's not, it's pretty clear that that's not what we get. It's not security camera footage. The six days aren't interested in chronology in the way that we might think of it. These two accounts are side by side on purpose. So just like you should never look at this photo and try to do astronomy based on it, in my opinion, you shouldn't look at Genesis 1 to 11 and try to do science. That's turning a painting into data. That's trying to take this picture and make it into this Hubble photograph. And it's um, taking our scientific way that we pursue truth in our culture and colonizing all other forms of representing truth. Let me just give one last quote from Tim Mackey, uh, who, who is the leader of the Bible Project. He says this, The scientific approach is to understand the components of something, the causal relationships between all those components, so that you can make a predictable diagnosis. And then, based off that knowledge, predict other events. And then you can create a whole system of knowledge. It's a type of intellectual mastery, and it's why I can get my cavities filled. But it creates a culture where intellectual mastery can become a virtue the highest virtue, and then an idol, where the certainty of that mastery can become a false god. And I wonder sometimes if debates about certainty in the Genesis narrative are actually more captive to the Western mentality than they are biblical. So it's completely understandable to me that we would come to this narrative with scientific lenses, that's how we've been trained to think in our world, and it has brought so many successes to our world. And as uh, John Walton says, based on our place in history, we can't even conceive of these narratives as anything other than scientific. It's what we're trained to do. But I would say this, if we're going to take the Bible seriously on its own terms, then we have to be aware of the lens that we bring because of our time in history and not impose that on the text, but allow the text to speak for itself. So, if this is ancient literature... And it's giving us a non-scientific picture of truth and reality. What is it doing? And here's the second point. This is ancient literature that's introducing us to the rest 
of the story of God. That's what I think Genesis 1 to 11 is doing. And by this, I mean it's giving us the themes and the characters and the language and the motifs that will be introduced to us or that will run through the rest of the story of God. So if you imagine the Bible as a massive tapestry, Genesis 1 to 11 is where all the threads start. And you'll see the thread continues to go on for the rest of the story. It's a lot like the principle of Chekhov's gun, if you guys have heard of this principle. He's writing about uh, writing mystery stories. And this is what he says. If you say in the first chapter that there's a rifle hanging on the wall, in the second or third chapter, it absolutely must go off. And so Genesis 1 is giving us all of the rifles on the wall, and the rest of the Bible, we'll just see them going off. Boom, 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 boom. Here's what I mean. Let me give you some examples. I started this last week, but let me give you a few more. Last week, we looked at Genesis 1. Day 1, light and darkness. Will this become an important motif in any way in the rest of the story? When the Gospel writer John wants to introduce Jesus to us, how does he do it? In him was light, and that light has shone in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. Day 2. God separates the water above and the water below with this weird dome situation. Will that play out at all in the story? Will at one point maybe the dome break and all the water will come flooding down? Or will there be any stories where people with this water, that's this chaos water that's there, will they be stopped, impeded on their journeys by water and God will have to separate the waters once again to create in order to let them through? Day three, the creation of land. Will land at all play an important part in the story of God's people? Or trees. It's interesting how it describes them. They're trees that are good, and they have seeds, and they bear fruit, which are nice to look at. Will that play at all into the rest of the story? It's giving us all of these different themes. What about today's passage? It says, These are the generations of the skies and the land. This word generations in uh, Hebrew is the word toledot, and it's used ten times in the book of Genesis. And most theologians would say it's actually the organizing principle of Genesis. It's organized by these toledot formulas, they call it. And so here's some fun, I was going to say fun homework, it's probably fun. I don't know if anyone here other than me would find this fun. You go home, go and read this. What is it saying about this? It's setting up a pattern for us. That will play out in the rest of these formulas. What is the pattern that's happening? That's being set up with generations. Or it says, in this day God created, when God created, there was no shrub, no plant, no rain, no human. These themes come up again and again in the Hebrew scriptures. You can go home this week or in your community group, take a look. Take a look at the Psalms. How often this language populates the Psalms. Or the exile language. When the people have to leave their land, it comes up again and again. They're borrowing from this language that's creating all the language and the themes of the Hebrew scriptures that lead us to Jesus. So if the Bible is a library of stories that lead to Jesus, Genesis 1 to 11, it's like the table of contents. You can look at it that way. And what we do is we we normally just hop off the street in our Bible reading, walk into the library, grab a random book off of the shelf, and just be like, oh, get my verse for today. And you can, you can do that. But the way that the Bible is actually designed is for us to very carefully read these first 11 chapters and then to follow them through the story in order to see a more full-color picture of Jesus and what the story actually is. 
So not only is this passage giving us the themes and the words and the motifs through which to read the rest of the story, it's also introducing us for how we're to think about truth and how we're to think about God. Here's what I mean by this. Genesis 1 and 2 is giving us these two creation narratives side by side. And they're saying it's doing that on purpose. And to us, as modern Western people, we think that's absolutely crazy. But it wouldn't have been crazy to the original readers, to the Hebrew, ancient Hebrew people. Because from what I understand in my reading, it's very common, actually, for them to place two stories together that are different and, and say something like this. They both have truth in them, yet the truth is greater than either of them. There's a truth that lies in the middle of it. And that breaks our minds as modern people. We're like, look, we'll just go get the security camera footage and we'll get to the bottom of this. We'll figure out what actually happened. But that's not the way that it works. And that's great if that's what we want as modern people. As my wife would say, the first step is naming what you want. It's good to name what you want and say what you want. But the next question is to ask, is that actually what we get in Scripture? We want to know what the security camera footage would show us. Is that what the passages are giving us? And I would say, no, it's fairly clear to me that it isn't. What we get is multiple creation or multiple tellings of the same story. And in fact, here we get two side by side, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. But if you read through the rest of Scripture, there are over 20 different creation narratives. And if you try to cut and paste them to create some sort of Hubble picture, you will break them or you'll break your brain. One or the other. That's what I think happens. And you might say, oh, does that mean that everything is relative and, and, you know, everything is nothing and that God can be whoever we want? No, I don't think that's at all what this narrative is trying to tell us. It's trying to guide us into truth. It's just not the truth that we're comfortable with as modern Western people. But I think we can wrap our brains around it at least a little bit if we look at it like this. What the Bible, I think, is trying to say to us in these first few chapters, at least one of the things, is that this God that we're meeting is so big that he can't be contained into a single story. He's, he's huge. That the outpouring of love, that the, out, the massive boom of potentiality and creativity that happened in the beginning of the world is so huge that we can't just limit it to one single story. That the amount of potential that God sees when he looks at you, that the amount of care that he has for you is greater than we could tell with one narrative. That when we look at this God, we, when we get face to face with him, we, we come to the end of our limits of our, or we come to the limits of our language to be able to describe who he is. Our, the limits of our ability to ra- rationalize, to wrap our mind around him, to master him in any sort of way. And this is actually true of most things that happen in the greatest moments of our lives. We don't tell them in a, sing- excuse me, in a single story. In those moments that we talk about, and Gareth mentioned it, of the moments of resonance that we have, these moments where we just feel deeply connected with another person or with our world, where life feels full, where things come into full color, these moments are moments, they're stories we tell again and again and again. Uh, I have some friends, and I think there's some people here who went to Coldplay uh, over the weekend. These, these concerts, sometimes if, if you're a fan of Coldplay and if it was a good concert, how do you tell the story of what happened there? Was it, you know, if it's me, it was good? Does that do it? Well, that partially does it. But if it was a life-changing moment, and maybe it was for some people, you tell the story again and again 
and again and again. For me to tell the story of holding my kids for the first time, I can't, I reach the limits of what my language can do. I reach the limits of my ability to convey for you what happened for me in that moment. And that is what happens. So I tell the story again and again. And that's what we all do. We all do it. And that's why actually poets and artists are so important because they're just slightly better than the rest of us at doing this. And so we can draft in behind them and learn new ways to do it. But like, we don't need more love songs in the world, do we? Do we, Taylor Swift? We do not. Okay? If you take one thing away, we don't need more Taylor Swift in the world. But why are there continually more love songs put out all the time? It's because these moments where we, we connect deeply with somebody, we, just, we were at the edge of our language of what we can say. And this is exactly what the Bible is saying to us about this God. When we approach him, which we're invited to do, we come to the end of our ability to talk about this God who is amazingly beautiful, who is amazingly brilliant, who is worth following with absolutely everything that we have. And it's going to take our best and the best of the ancients to continually put forward our praise and our words to talk about this God. And that's exactly what actually happens with the gospel writers. When they meet Jesus, when they meet this God who has become human, you know, this three-in-one God, you can already tell we're at the limits of our language. How do we talk about this God? When they meet this God, they're like, yeah, one book, I guess it's not enough, so let's give you four. And the gospel writer John maybe says it better than any of them, where he's like, yeah, I I wanted to write more, but I realized there wasn't enough paper. There's not enough ink to talk about who this person is. But I have to talk. I have to give you something, and so I'm giving it to you. But he's just bigger than this. He is greater than this. And so we come to the edge of our ability to rationalize. We come to the edge of our ability of our language when we come to the, in face-to-face with God. But we don't come to the edge of our ability to worship, which is what these narratives are designed to do. What this whole Bible is designed to do is to introduce us to this person and say to come and to worship, to stand in awe of this God and to stand in wonder. And so don't let your modern sensibilities, which trend us towards singularizing, towards computerizing this information, to taking this Van Gogh and trying to turn it into the Hubble picture, don't let that tendency ruin our abilities to listen to these stories, to stand in awe of the God who stands behind them and beckons us to come and follow. And I can't think, you know, we're going to respond now in this time. We're going to sing Singing is one of these artistic ways that we express continually who this God is and what he does. But I can't think of any better way to to end this time than to invite you to come to the table where we celebrate uh, Jesus giving his his life for us. And, you know, this is one of the places where I think uh, scientific thinking in in, uh, Christianity, at least the Christianity that most of us are exposed to, has taken over. And so when we come to the table, at least the way that I've been trained to think about it is what happens at this table. Does the you know, juice or wine turn into God's blood? What exactly happens? When does it happen? And those are helpful questions. But another way of thinking about what happens to this table is by thinking of it sacramentally, which is a tradition that's been happening for a long time, which basically says this. I don't know. I don't know the chronology of what happens here. I don't know the mechanics of it all. But I do know that when we come to this table, God promises to meet us here. When we come together, when we come to take this story and bring it into our lives as a community, God promises to meet us and work through us. 
And that's the invitation that we have every single week, the invitation of our lives to follow this God. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for these narratives, for these stories. Um, there's probably a lot to think about here uh, for some of us. Maybe some new information. But I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would draw us in. And that this information wouldn't stop us from the invitation to meet you, to see you for who you are, and to follow you. So we give you this time, and we ask that you would guide and meet us in our response. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.